0: How's everybody doing? I hope well. I hope you've enjoyed making it through just this horrible weekend with all the gross weather outside. But man, it's been so good to get some sunshine and to just be able to enjoy that. Um, Yeah, Matt mentioned, um, or should I say uh, Tom Selleck up here doing his one-man show, mentioned everybody of the age of 40 gets that. Um, Tom Selleck mentioned that we're in the Gospel of Mark, so we kicked that off last week. And the passage that we looked at last week, what we noticed is that Mark is unique. In a lot of ways, Mark, speculatively, although probably most certainly also at the same time, it's kind of odd to hold those things up against each other. Um, It's probably the like the first gospel written. Like many people hold that that Mark, as he wrote this story that we're walking through, really created the genre of the gospel, and so um, we're meant to see that first. It's probably the earliest gospel recorded. Um, although this had passed down as people talked about and 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 shared their lives around these central truths that Mark writes about. And what we learned about Mark is that he writes very expeditiously, okay? And so he writes quickly, it's meant to be fast-paced, it's meant to like like be more like you're watching an action movie than a drama. And so he omits a lot. It doesn't include, and that's some of that is just his style of writing. But some of that is his purpose in writing that. And so what we discovered last week's passage, we discovered that Mark is writing um, to proclaim and to herald the good news that God's long-awaited and promised Messiah has arrived. And he's arrived in the person of Jesus. And so he, he speeds through that. He does do some very purposeful thing. He connects it back to the creation story he says this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus um, he connects it to other Gospels that will go on to be written like John where he says in the beginning and so so what he's doing is he's rooting Jesus in the entirety of the narrative and beyond the narrative he's rooting Jesus in the person of God in the Trinity and he's rooting Jesus in the creation and so now Mark writes there's a lot of subtleties to what he writes that you have to pick up on, and so we need to pay attention to themes like Exodus as they reveal themselves, which is great since we just walked through the whole Exodus story. Um, we should think about creation when we read Mark. We should think about Adam. Adam is God's like king that he set over all of creation and gave a task to subdue and to have dominion over creation and to flourish and to carry out God's mission, which is to to be, to be like fruitful and, and multiply. And of course, we see Adam's failure held up against Jesus, the good king, the one and true king who lived this out perfectly. And so, um, so really, Mark does this. He, he points us to a specific person in the passage that we looked at last week, which is this guy, John, who's Jesus's cousin. And John is simply this. He's a herald. He's A messenger and he dispatches his message really quickly last week and he just says, hey this person that's walking to me right now that this audience of people around the river that he's baptizing people in can see this person who's coming is in fact the Messiah and then Jesus is baptized and we hear this like inauguration of of God's king in the person of Jesus which means God's kingdom is now here and present in the person of Jesus. Jesus. And so this passage is, that we're looking at this morning, is really about the arrival of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus. Uh, But it's also this, it's also the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry. And it's, we see in this passage this morning, his call to, to grab some followers, some disciples. But before we jump into all of that, I do want us to do this. So if you didn't catch last week's sermon, go back and listen to that. You can find that on the website. Um, but, but I want us to look at a pattern that emerged last week that we didn't really highlight, but it's going to fit for today. So, in Jesus' baptism, in his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, it reveals uh, like this kind of parallel pattern between Jesus and Israel. And we should always be thinking, although Jesus is from Israel. He is a Hebrew. He is Jewish. He, he also, in so many ways, is Israel. And so, so Jesus is like Israel in miniature. Now, I don't mean that Jesus' status is diminutive or that he's small. In fact, as we work through the story, we are meant to see Jesus as far superior, far greater, far more vast in what he does than Israel. But just in the sense that, like, Israel is thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and in Jesus we have one man and so so Jesus is like Israel in miniature and he he begins to retell the the story of Israel in his own life and so so Israel like just think about Israel like what do we know they they passed through as they were being formed as a people they passed through the tumultuous waters of the Red Sea and then they meet with the living God at Mount Sinai and then that's where God declares him. If you remember this from the Exodus story, God declares Israel that they are his treasured possession among all of his creation and then what we see real quick in that meeting with the living God at the mountain is Israel sins. And they begin to wander in the wilderness for 40 days and they're led by the Spirit of God as they enter into the promised land. And then we hold Jesus up. We see Jesus in the passage last week. He's he passes through the water of baptism by his cousin, John. And then he receives in that moment in his baptism, the approval of his father. His father speaks, you are my, my son. I'm well pleased with you. I'm delighted in you. Just like, like God spoke that over Israel, Jesus is baptized. And then, and then immediately following this scene, this inauguration of a sense Of Jesus from the Father. We see Jesus being expelled. And that's the language, remember last week. Jesus, by the Spirit, right, is expelled into the wilderness and he's out there for 40 days. And so we we need to see those parallels and that pattern repeat itself. So it's no surprise when we come to Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after encountering God, right, after after being in the presence of the living God and, and after the wilderness temptation, Jesus launches now just like israel right after 40 days after 40 years jesus launches his own invasion of canaan and he enters galilee proclaiming the gospel of god and the reason for this pattern is simply this and we we highlighted it last week and i want us to to think about this last point that we looked at last week through the rest of the gospel. So if you remember anything from last week, if you remember anything from today, I want you to always be thinking about Jesus as our substitute, and not just in his death, but in his life, especially as we walk through his life here in in Mark's gospel account, is we need to see Jesus as our substitute, as he lived. He lived substitutionally the life that we were meant to live, but never could, right? So that's why he is living out kind of this mini version of Israel's story on their behalf, on our behalf. So we need to recognize this. When Jesus was baptized, he wasn't baptized for the forgiveness of his own sins because he, in fact, had none. He was baptized so that he could identify as our substitute with our sins. And he wasn't driven into the wilderness for his own sins. He was driven into the wilderness For ours, and unlike Israel, and unlike Adam, when Jesus was tempted by the enemy, he stood firm. What Adam failed to do in the temptation, Jesus succeeded in. And then because of that, he became qualified to be both perfectly God and perfectly man. And and for us, and, and for our salvation, Jesus stands in our place and lives that life. But but here's one more thing about that pattern and it's not just Israel and Jesus because that pattern has to be seen in our own lives like we have that same pattern right like God often brings us to these monumental moments where we're experiencing his presence so intimately and and we come face to face with the living God and we worship him and so we have these like mountaintop experiences and he showers us with his grace and his mercy and he makes us feel his love and affection like if you have not yet felt that as a follower of Jesus like I hope and pray that you do and you have those moments, but then probably for most of us, this is also true. There's those moments where you then feel expelled, right? The next thing you know, you find yourself stranded in the darkness of the wilderness, the vastness of it, and you feel like you're surrounded at every side by wild animals and God's enemies, and our lives will vacillate, between those things from from mountaintop to the valleys of shadows from the heights of joy to the pit of despair and we need to see this pattern even in jesus's life because it shows us as our substitute as jesus walks through the wilderness walks through the temptation walks through those dark passages those dark moments, those, those moments where he feels threatened. Jesus stands firm in those, does not give in to temptation, and he does not sin. And, and he does it in a way that we are meant to see, that, that God's design and plan for us as his followers was never just to remove us from those difficult situations, but to firmly hold us through them. And we look to Jesus as our pattern And so not just when we're on the mountaintops, but when we're walking through the valleys of despair, we look to Jesus and go, that's how we were meant to live. And he gives us not only an example, but he holds us through this and shapes us and grows us through those moments. And so when we identify that pattern, like and and internalize that pattern and experience that pattern, listen, I get it. When the call to discipleship includes suffering and pain like when somebody asks you to be on their team to follow me to do what i do to like come over here and join me in this like if just a human was like hey this is great come do this whatever that may be and then they said but it's also going to have a lot of moments where it's just awful and it's hard and it feels bad most of us would like i don't want that but jesus calls us to a discipleship that acknowledges that his goal was never to lift us out or remove us from those painful difficult circumstances but to walk through us with them to grow and to shape us and so there is a sense in which the call to discipleship terrifies us right I mean just look at the pattern as it unfolds throughout scripture think about joseph joseph he receives these dreams and vision and he's like close to god and he's listening to god and he hears from god but then what happens to him he's sold by his brothers he's falsely accused by potiphar's wife and he's left to rot in an Egyptian prison for years. Look at Moses' his life. He's, he flees for his life. He lives and he's stranded out in the desert for like 40 years in the Midian wilderness. And then um, before God, he, he comes in the form of this burning bush and he has these amazing moments. And like, do we even need to talk about Job, right? And so like, you should get it. Like, like I, I can't find a single story of a character in the Bible where they don't walk through some sense of suffering and darkness of the soul and those moments, right? And so there's just, we we should not ever like kind of register the call of discipleship in our life to everything being perfect and great, right? We see this pattern and it should cause us to pause. It should cause us, and Jesus asks us to. He says, before you're all in, you need to recognize, you need to step back and say like, The call of discipleship is costly. The call of discipleship is to carry a cross and a cross signifies death. And in this sense, what it means to follow Jesus and to carry your cross, and it's the pattern that we see over and over and over again, is it is a call to death. It's a call to put to death in us the things that Jesus would rather not have be a part of our life, those sins that ensnare us. And so... It should cause us to pause when we see this pattern emerge because it should make you somewhat fearful. Like the guarantee is you will walk through suffering and pain and, and you should ask, like, what does God have in store for me? Because following Jesus gives us no guarantee of safety and comfort. We'll return to that in the end. So have I painted a picture of what this looks like? Like you should be both fearful fearful but also worshipful because of what we see, the totality of this pattern as it emerges. We see grace and mercy in it. So so let's get back to, to Mark and let's phrase this again. Remember, if you, if you kind of lost track of this or didn't hear this from last week, Mark writes his gospel, his account of his Jesus story, And he writes it specifically for Jesus' followers that were Gentiles living in Rome. They had come to hear the good news of Jesus. They had seen it. Some of them had been traveled from Jerusalem to Rome, and and that's how the gospel got there, and they're proclaiming, and so they've surrendered their lives to this good king, but they're also suffering horrific persecution from the state. Nero has enacted this, like, horrible, like, let's get rid of these followers of Jesus in the city of Rome. And so what we need to understand is the majority of people that were going to get this letter, they were probably not familiar. They're probably Gentiles, and they're not familiar with Jewish history or culture, and they wanted to understand what it means to follow this Jewish carpenter who claimed to be the Christ. And so Mark does this. Mark seems to assume some knowledge of Jesus and his story when he writes his gospel to these believers in Rome. For example, like just how it kicks off in verse 14, now after John was arrested, right? So we get no explanation of the events around John's arrest. There's no context for that. Mark just seems to assume that this account, right, that what he's what he's writing about right now, his readers would have just known that John was arrested, or maybe he just assumes that the details around it aren't as significant, because Mark is writing again very rapidly, and so he leaves out and omits some other details that the other gospel writers will go on to include, because he wants his readers to get to the point, and it makes sense. Like, if you're hunkered down fearful of your life afraid of the persecution that you hear people have been suffering like you want to get to the point you don't have time to read like a whole novel you just go like man i just need to know like how do i register this how do we how do we thrive and flourish when there's darkness all around us. And so Mark just jumps in. He seems to assume that his readers would just know that John was arrested. And he uses this like common knowledge. And here's the most significant thing. Why does he jump to John's arrest? He jumps to John's arrest because he wants to put a time stamp on this thing. He wants to identify the time when Jesus kicks off and begins his ministry in Galilee. And so if you remember from John's gospel, different John, not John the Baptist, but John. Um, the the disciple John writes about really two key and significant places, right? And and Mark will too. Jesus's ministry takes place in Galilee and in the city of Jerusalem, and they're they're far apart. Galilee's in the northern piece, um, and Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. And so, this is the beginning of Jesus's Galilean ministry, right? That's home turf for him. That's where he was from, and it's this region all along the sea the northern sea like the northern region along the sea of galilee so um this is probably also like marks account again he's, he 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 writes with a brevity in certain places it's it's very like compact and efficient because his gospel is a gospel of action. He wants to reveal Jesus's action, right? Which is important. So he uses the word immediately over and over again in his gospel because he wants to keep it moving forward. So if Mark is written so that we can understand and know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, he's really calling people to the mat. He's really saying like, I want you to consider all of these things just like Jesus is calling our life. Um, what it means to be a disciple so so mark's gospel in some ways like reads like a manual for discipleship what's the call of being a disciple in our life how do we live as a disciple of jesus and so it's important to see how jesus's ministry begins right and we need to see this discipleship for us begins with an announcement and an invitation from god so what's that announcement look at verse 15 and saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel so jesus shows up like john's out of the picture now like we won't hear anything about john because john just showed up as a placeholder as a proclaimer that that good news is coming and good news is coming in the person of jesus and so jesus shows up And he says that the time is fulfilled, the time is now, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's close, it's near to you, it is in me, I am the kingdom of God, I am God's chosen king. And the message of God's king is to repent and believe in the gospel. So, so he arrives, he proclaims the gospel, it's an announcement and an invitation. What does Jesus do? First and foremost, he calls people to repentance, right? So the, re- the word repentance means to reverse course or to turn away from something. So there's something in front of you and simply that word meant in, in the Hebrew language, it just meant to, to, to turn away, but it had a deeper and far more significant meaning. It wasn't just simply to turn away from, But it also had a sense of like returning home so when there's peril when there's danger out in front of you you turn away from it but then you return to a place of safety that's what the word meant apart from like religious overtones and jesus applies it now to say like the first thing that you should do the first thing as a follower of jesus as a a disciple of jesus when you hear that announced is that you should repent right so, in the Bible, as it takes that word, repentance means turning away from the things that Jesus hates to the things that he loves. Okay, so think about that when you think about repentance. You're turning away from the things that Jesus hates. the things that he loves, right? And then this phrase gospel, and it simply means good news. That is also a word in the original language that that didn't carry like like explicit religious overtones. It just meant good news, right? It means news that brings joy, and so when you hear it, you're happy. Um, Again, it has its its original meaning outside of the context of religion. It means um, in, in history, it means when you hear good news, they would use it that, that the news that you're hearing is life-shaping news. It's history-making news. So the event that they would report on as good news is something that is meant to be seen as like life-altering for you. So in the sense that Jesus is using it, a gospel announcement is something that that has happened in history. He's saying, This has happened. The good news is that the kingdom is at hand. It's now before you, something that's been done for you that changes your forever status, right? And so so that's what Jesus proclaims. He proclaims that we should repent and believe in the good news about the king and the kingdom of God that is at hand and before you. So where he's drawing that from, it's amazing. In, In the biblical context, we get so much of what this, good news, and we really want to root it in, in like the entire story. And so we get so much of what this good news looks like from the prophet Isaiah, right? And Isaiah kind of uses it um, in, in multiple cases, and we're going to look at a few of these, right? So the first one, um, and Mark has already mentioned Isaiah 40. He kind of blends together Isaiah and Malachi. and a passage from Exodus in in the previous in john's message right so he's already quoted from isaiah and we're going to look at that passage in isaiah 40 a little bit heavily. this is this is this passage about the one crying and the voice in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord so a few verses later in verses 9 through 11 isaiah writes this he says go on up to a high mountain o zion herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. So what's this good news that Isaiah is writing about? Oh, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So that's significant. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him he will tend to his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young so the good news there and that is that you should behold your god remember that john said that one who is coming is mightier than me and, and we look at this story of this mighty God that John is pointing to, this mighty person, this strong person that John is pointing the people of Israel to. And we see this strong person, not as a victorious, reigning, like militaristic king, but as a lowly shepherd, tending and gathering up his people, gathering up his sheep, caring for them. So what's the good news? Behold, your God. And then again in Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so the good news is this is that God is returning to his people, and everyone will see it god is coming to bring comfort to redeem to save and the good news is that your god reigns god is coming to comfort he will bring peace and happiness salvation is coming in this god so the good news is that your god reigns so behold your god your god reigns and then finally in isaiah 61 1 through 3 it says, the spirit of the lord god is upon me Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisoners to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, Instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. First, like I just need you to see this that, like, the good news, like God proclaiming the good news, that good news is coming, that good news is here, that good news is at hand was rooted long before Mark even wrote a story, like r- long before Mark put paper to pen. God had already heralded the good news of his Messiah, and he used prophets like Isaiah to proclaim that. So in this passage, we see that God is going to anoint his deliverer with the Holy Spirit. So remember that at the baptism of Jesus, this deliverer, what we see, he will be bound up and he will bound up broken hearts he he's going to he's going to liberate prisoners he's going to proclaim god's favor he's going to comfort the mourning he's going to turn their sorrow into gladness and their weariness into praise and all of that good news proclaiming and heralding came long before the person of Jesus was incarnate. Now, Jesus always existed, but before he took on flesh the good news about what God's Messiah in Jesus would do and accomplish. What's the good news here from this passage in Isaiah? It's that your God saves. If you're weak, if you're poor, if you're brokenhearted, if you're enslaved, your God is here for you. And your god saves so that's the background to this good news that jesus is proclaiming that is in fact true in the person of jesus that's the old testament promise of hope and jesus arrives proclaiming and is the good news and he says the time is fulfilled what time the time that all the hope right for the good news like behold your god all of that is fulfilled in jesus that that your God reigns, that he's here to liberate the captives, that he's here to comfort the broken. That time is now. It's happening now in the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God, your God reigns, is here. So repent and believe in the good news that is before you in the person of Jesus. So we're going to return to what it means to repent and believe here at the end. But for now, I want you to really kind of notice something that's happened so far, right? In, in verse 4, John appears, right? If you go back to verse 4, John appears, and he's dressed like Elijah, right? The prophet who was taken up into heaven, announcing that that a mighty one is going to come. Then the next thing, right? Some guy from Nazareth, this insignificant little podunk town in Galilee that would never make it on the radar. Nothing ever significant happens there. Nobody of any importance ever comes from that town. And this guy from there shows up to be baptized by this, gone, this guy, John. So John's message is this, the, the mightiest of all, the person whose sandals and shoes I am not worthy to tie is showing up. I can see him. He's, he's approaching me. It's this carpenter from Nazareth, Right. And then the spirit descends upon this carpenter from Nazareth like a dove and the father expresses his delight in this nobody from nazareth he says you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased and then the next thing that happens the spirit drives him or expels him out into the wilderness with these wild animals to to face satan now in this passage the gospel of god behold your god your god reigns your god saves the kingdom is here now let's get some fishermen right let's look at this passage 16 through 20. so so passing alongside the sea of galilee he saw simon and andrew There's a pattern emerging here, even in Mark, right? In each case, Mark raises our expectations. John says, man, who is showing up is mightier than me, mightier than anybody standing. You've got probably like Roman soldiers watching this unfold, right? Because they were everywhere. So in, in a sense, you had the representation of all of the might of the Roman empire. You probably had powerful religious leaders watching John baptize people. You probably had significant important people in the crowd. And Jesus is saying the mightiest of all people is showing up in the person of Jesus, who's just simply a carpenter from a no place, nobody place, right? And so you need to see this. Mark raises our expectations by alluding to God's promises, drawing out how they're true in the Old Testament. Elijah is preparing the way. The Spirit is resting on God's beloved King and Son. The announcement of God's triumphant kingdom. All of that is happening here in this proclamation. And then in each case, he immediately like takes it to left field and surprises us. Nazareth, what? That's a nobody place, nowhere place. The wilderness, like that's where you go to die. Like no, nothing significant happened. Fishermen, like they're nobodies, right? So Mark raises our expectation and then overturns our expectations. But in overturning our expectations, Mark is clear that Jesus is actually fulfilling God's expectations and we see that when it comes to the calling of his first disciples it's it's always been a bit odd to me like you read this story the fact that these four people that he mentions here would just drop everything to follow some random strength like what would it take for that to be true for you you're just minding your own business you're at work you're in your cubicle or whatever it looks like for you and somebody walks up and just says stop what you're doing stop your current employment and follow me with no future promise of employment, no f- promise of what that future is going to look like. You're safe and you're sound, right? And so that's what comes to them, and so he calls them, and and we need to see that that there's something significant happening. I mean, they're just they're just fishermen, right? Who are completely focused on the task at hand, they're focused on making a living and maybe providing for their families. And then Jesus comes up and he he looks him in the eye and says, follow me and I'm going to make you to become fishers of men. Like you're not that thing now. You will become that. And the process of becoming that is me making you that, right? So that's odd. And, 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 and they're so intrigued or maybe they're just simply confused or they're just entranced by that clever turn of a phrase that they just drop everything and go, it's always weird and never settled with me, right? Because I know it would take a lot for somebody to unearth like all of my rhythms and habits and whatever and just leave everything behind, right? And so to help us understand all of this and to kind of put it into context, um, here's what we need to see. The events, and we're not gonna do this too much. We really wanna kind of try to stay in Mark as we, as much as we can, but it's helpful to, to think about this in the chronology of things, Right? the events of John 1 through 4, right? If you go to John's gospel, are you guys familiar with John's gospel? Should we just preach through John's gospel for like four years? I don't know. But So if you remember all the way back three or four years ago when we started this, all of those events that occur from John 1 to 4, they occur prior to this section of Mark. So there's a lot of content that Mark leaves out. There's a lot of events that happen, right? It's after the baptism and the temptation of Jesus that we see Jesus, he's doing some teaching, he's doing some ministry, what do we have? We've got water into wine. Mark doesn't tell us about that. We've got the cleansing of the temple. We've got this midnight chat with Nicodemus. We've got this conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. All of that is prior to what John is, or Mark is saying right now. So it includes some baptisms. It includes some calling of some disciples but it's not yet like the full incarnation of Jesus's public ministry, right? That's what's gonna make Jesus famous or rather infamous in Israel. And Mark basically fast forwards us most commonly that time period is kind of called the year of obscurity. And and Mark fast forwards us through John's writings about Jesus's year of obscurity, and he jumps us straight into the launching of Jesus's public ministry in Galilee. And so this passage doesn't record the conversations with Simon and Andrew, James and John. Instead, Jesus comes and tells them it's time, let's go. So it's important to note that this is not a call to salvation. Rather, it's their call to ministry, right? They stop fishing for fish so that they can learn to become fishers of men from Jesus. So that's that's Jesus is going to teach them how to call people to repentance and faith and trust in the king and his kingdom, which raises a question, does that mean that Jesus like follow his follow me in this passage only applies to those of us that are like you know doing this for a living we're called to full-time vocational ministry so like you guys are excused from that absolutely not right because because you have to see like Jesus didn't say like okay for those of you that are out fishing like we're going to take you through seminary right you'll get a bible when you graduate um, you're going to learn how to preach, you're going to learn how to like do, you know, marry people and bury. like it's none of that. He's just average everyday people living their life, and he's saying like, listen, you're fishermen now, and I'm going to teach you how to become this thing that fulfills my great mission for my people, right? And so, and so when Jesus was on earth, in order to follow him, like it's connected to that call to learn to fish for men, like you had to stop fishing for fish, right? If you wanted to learn from Jesus, you had to be with Jesus, which means that you couldn't be with your dad on a boat catching fish. But the reality is for us today, like none of us are going to leave our careers of fishermen, fisherman, because I don't think that's true for any of us, but none of you probably left what you were doing to follow Jesus. Now, that's the call for the first disciples, because they're going to walk with him, they're going to talk with them. He's gonna instruct and train them in what it means. And he's gonna select like twelve of them to be apostles, right? Those are two distinct thing, right? He's gonna he's gonna have like seventy or so disciples and, and many more along the way. But then he's gonna have these twelve that he sends out as apostles, right? But the reality for us is that none of us are gonna leave our careers probably to follow Jesus. In fact, most of us stay in those things, right? So the truth for us today is you can fish for men while fishing for fish, right? Or working at Target or being in law enforcement or being a nurse or being a teacher or making a home or any of other thousands of vocations that you may call yourself to. But ultimately, the vocation that Jesus calls you to while you're working your job like, is to be a fisher of men. Like That should radically change why you show up to work, right? Whatever you do. If you go like, yeah, here's what I do for a job. Here's what I do to get paid. But but the calling on this, the vocation, the holy vocation is to be a fisher of men. Jesus still wants to make us fishers of men. He wants to make Teachers that are fishers of men. He wants to make baristas that are fishers of men. He wants to make those of you that are students. He wants to make you students that are, that are fishing for men and calling people to repentance and submitting to, to the king. So, so you're all going to be involved with some, some of that in some ways, right? That's, that's the call to be a good news people. But for most of us, right, that's going to mean this. You're going you're to be tending to your nets. You're going to be working your job and living faithfully where God has planted you right? And and the reason that you don't have to leave your nets to follow Jesus is because Mark wrote you this to learn how to do this, right? So your call is to follow Jesus and proclaim the good news in the everyday stuff of life where you all are, and to recognize God has actually already called you to where he wants you to be, to be a good news proclaimer. So thanks to Mark, and like just like these disciples, here's what we get in this: we get to have a like a front row seat to to what it means to follow Jesus, to see how how Jesus fulfilled God's promises, to 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 see how Jesus overturns every one of our expectations, and to see um, and and reveal to us this surprising character of God in in, in the person of Jesus. So last thing and we'll be done is this last little chunk, right? Now this was a tough piece to go like like how do we connect this because this is a shift in tone, right? We get this we get this proclamation from Jesus, here's what the good news is, repent and, and believe in the kingdoms at hand, right? And then we get this story about the calling of some of these disciples, but then it connects to this kind of interesting story about this healing this and so so it, it's all meant to, to, to purposefully show, um, what this king and what his kingdom looks like. So we have this final part of the sermon today, which, which almost feels a bit disconnected from everything else, the calling of the disciples, but because it, it, it immediately goes into this, right? And then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? How have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So it's significant to recognize that that, that, that unclean spirit, that, that demonic presence recognizes who Jesus is where he's from that he's the holy one of God but Jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him and the unclean spirit convulsing him and and we need to keep in mind that word when Jesus casts out demons he's expelling them just like he was expelled out right so and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority and he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So this this healing kicks off Jesus's fame. So people start to hear about this 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 carpenter from Nazareth is like has some type of something about him, some type of authority about him, right? So so Jesus and his, and his disciples they're in Capernaum, and he does two things. He goes to the synagogue, and he begins teaching, right? And it says everybody was astonished at how well he taught. And and twice in this passage, we're told that Jesus or his teaching, the words that he's speaking or the things that he's doing has authority, right? And we need to distinguish. There's two uses of his authority here, right? In the first, the people are astonished because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, Um, man, we're going to probably highlight this often. Like I actually close with a quote from this, but man, I can't recommend that Tim Keller book enough, the Mark book, like read into that. You can find that on the, on, again, on our website, it'll have a resource, pick that up. Uh, He talks about this authority in such a unique way. And I think you're going to find us like like probably quoting Tim Keller, like every sermon in in one of these, but I would point you to what he says about this authority piece. It's, It's so good, but that's gonna, it'll be, add some more robustness to this. But I want us to look at this and the way that it's used in, in two different ways, right? So he teaches with authority, not as the scribes. So this is a declarative authority, right? It's a reflection of how Jesus taught. Jesus has come. He's proclaiming the gospel of God. He's announcing the kingdom. He's, he's heralding the arrival of God's kingdom. If you went to the scribes and asked, what does God want me to do, Right? More than likely, their answer would be this. Well, and so they're gonna, they're gonna point to, to, to rabbinical teaching and they would say like, well, let's look at what Rabbi Eliezer has to say about this. Like, what does God, what does Rabbi Hillel want us to do? What is, and they're gonna point to the teachings and the work of the rabbis, right? And so you would get this rabbinic disputation, right? What do rabbis argue about? What do they talk about? What are they saying that their take in on the scriptures is what does God want us to do, right? And they're going to appeal to various authorities who had reflected on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible and the law. And they're going to they're say like, well, let's look back at these other teachings. But if you ask Jesus what God was up to, like, like Jesus, what does God want us to do? He'd look you in the eye and say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And and, and God wants you to know that your God reigns and that he's coming to comfort and to deliver you from your sin and believe the good news. And, And that difference in how they spoke, like Jesus doesn't have to point to or reference any other authority on what God and the good news about God is because he is the authority and he taught like one with authority. And so the difference is how they spoke is, is why Jesus' teaching is so striking. He speaks not like a scribe, not like a rabbi, but as a prophet, as a messenger from God Himself. He and the Father are one, and so He is speaking for the Father. And if you listen carefully, He speaks even far beyond a prophet, right? That's the first use of authority, and it refers to how Jesus speaks. The second use of authority is more than this, right? Jesus proclaims the gospel of God in the synagogue people marvel at how he speaks but then all of a sudden this demon possessed guy shows it's kind of interesting right like jesus is up here doing what i'm doing and then a person in the audience is possessed you know like i, I guarantee this demon possessed guy had a mustache too by the way i guarantee it right so it just starts saying some stuff right and so he confronts this demon possessed guy and says what do you have to do with us jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So so there's an authority that those demons are recognizing in Jesus. Jesus rebukes him, he silences him, and then casts out or expels the demon, right? And the people are amazed and they're astonished. So same reaction in what he says and then in what he does, right? So not, as, not only does Jesus teach authoritatively, but his teaching itself comes with power and authority to drive out demons. He doesn't just say it forcefully, he shows it, and then Matt's going to walk us through another way that he shows his authority next week, right? So so here <clears throat> there is both authority in Jesus's powerful word, but also in Jesus's powerful deed or action. He's here to set the captives free. You see how he's connecting that to the good news that Isaiah wrote about this king, is that he will set captives free to deliver those that are in bondage. So Jesus takes that and actually lives that out right and so this gospel that jesus announces we need to see it both as powerful in its proclamation but also powerful in its execution so jesus is proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of god but then he executes or lives out or demonstrates the kingdom of god so what's not normal in the kingdom of god is for the enemy to show up and possess people. And he's saying, like, that's not normal in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is both proclaiming the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom with one who has authority, right? If you look at the demon's response, look at them They're terrified. They know exactly what's going on. Second, the crowds, they're amazed. They're astonished by him. His fame spreads everywhere. Jesus gathers a lot of fans like people are like yeah this is awesome right we've heard about this guy and as we'll see the crowds begin to flock to Jesus because of this they start to flock to Jesus for healing for deliverance but Mark wants us to know this that Jesus is so much more about something else he, he's not primarily about instilling terror in demons and creating fanboys that's not what Jesus is about right he wants us to keep our eyes on what it means to follow Jesus, to count the cost of discipleship. He wants to make like little mini versions of himself who will take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. So let me close by returning to that fear of what God might ask us. Like, what does it mean when he calls us to follow him? We, like, there should be something in us that stops and pause and counts the cost of what it means to follow him because the fundamental call to repent and believe and trust, right? Given who God is and and given the patterns in scripture that make it clear that, that he often guides his people into times of greater darkness and suffering and into those wilderness moments. Like he doesn't always just pull us out of those. There's times where we will suffer under affliction. There is in all of us a tendency to like shrink then back from too much intimacy, too much connection with God, because if the promise is like I'll walk through you, like within in your suffering and pain, like right? and, and the guarantee is that I won't pull you out of that, we tend to shrink back from intimacy. Like if the call of being intimate with God is that we'll experience pain and suffering, like just like C.S. Lewis says, like we 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 stick to the shallows. The deep water of following God is it's terrifying. And C.S. Lewis said, some of us pray faintly and quietly, lest God actually hear us right so we tend to play it safe we, we place certain parts of our life off limits from god we say like ah this is mine this is not yours like we begin to bargain with god saying to him i'll, I'll take another step in faith if you promise that that next step won't just wreck me right if you promise to alleviate some of this and jesus confronts us and he and, and aims his proclamation of the gospel of God precisely at this attitude. He, he comes at us in our play it safe mentality. He, he, he hits home in our kind of like, you can't touch this part of me, God. You can't have this part of me, God, kind of state of mind. And this attitude of like, this is mine, not yours, God. And he says, behold, your God reigns. Behold, your God saves. Repent and believe in the good news that your God reigns. And the reality is this, your God reigns is only good news if he's your God. He is God, whether you want him to be or not, but it's only good news if he is your God. If he doesn't ask us permission, right? He doesn't ask permission to reign or to rule, but his reign is only good news if he is your God. And the only way for him to become your God is to repent and believe the gospel. Repentance begins with confessing your sins, with being honest with God about the sin in your life. And it means turning from it, rejecting it, allowing God to put it to death. And then faith means turning to and trusting in, relying on Jesus as the only hope for forgiveness, deliverance, and salvation. That's what Jesus does to every one of us this morning. He confronts us, with this reality in the call to follow Him, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus and repent and believe. And that choice confronts every one of us. And the next step to take is to be honest about that, to to be clear about what is truly keeping you from turning from your self-will and self-reign and self-rule and returning to Jesus's good reign and rule as king over your life and following him. There's no promise of safety. God is not safe, but he's good, and he reigns for you. I'll end with this. Tim Keller says in his book about Mark and this call to follow Jesus, which is ultimately what this Whole passage is about is it's a call to follow Jesus. He says this kind of paraphrasing of Jesus could say it this way. He says, Follow me because I am the king you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything. Yet I have humbled myself for you because I died on the cross for you when you didn't have the right to or you didn't have the right beliefs or the right behavior, because I have brought you news, not advice, because I am your true love, your true life. Follow me. And Hub City, the call this morning that we want to live into and respond to this morning is to follow our good King who reigns and rules.